This show may contain explicit language and or spoilers. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. And tonight we're discussing, as uh, we promised, Full Metal Jacket, the Stanley Kubrick film from 1987 uh, on the Vietnam War. Uh, So, just off the top, before we get to uh, everything that we've planned, um, just a quick housekeeping for next week. We're actually going to put out two uh, back-recorded episodes uh, that uh, we've previously done, which um, we uh, produced and put together uh, using um, uh, our old service before we kind of changed up. I'll get to that in a second. And uh, uh, so one is a little bit shorter. We have a little bit longer one, but Dana is on a much-needed vacation. So thankfully we were able to put these together. We're going to be bringing you two episodes next week and uh, be on the lookout for those. I'll probably just drop them at the same time. Uh, other things to come. Um, we have been hinting at it a while. We haven't fully made every disclosure yet, but we have some bonus content uh, episodes that we're slowly putting together, uh, different lists that we're making, or um, different topics that we're going to discuss more generally within movies. And I think we're going to start um, trying to put those together for next season um, so that that'll be a nice uh, little added feature for season two. Finally, as you heard at the top, we actually have new music, both for the uh, top of the show and the bottom. Uh, We're using a new editing software to um, put together the show, so we needed to uh, uh, change up the music a little. And um, if you have any feedback, we'd be glad to hear it, uh, either on the music or any of the ideas we've had or uh, just anything in general at this point. Uh, Anything to add, Dana? No, I haven't heard the new music, but... Is it better than Limp Biscuit? So, um, <laughs> yes. Um, I basically got it to be kind of like bright rock for the top. And then the bottom of the show, um, it was actually something that I thought reminded me of the music to Vertigo. So I thought it would be a nice little addition at the bottom uh, to kind of uh, send people out on. But, um, you know, you're kind of limited when uh, you're trying to put these together on a shoestring budget. But... All right, uh, turning our normal attention to uh, the movie of the week, Full Metal Jacket. Now, this is the first Kubrick movie we're discussing, but uh, this is the first time I'm seeing it, so I really don't have much of a relationship to this film. Um, do you have any relationship prior uh, with this film? Yes, I do. I saw it at theaters when it was released. Now, this was 1987? Yes. Okay, so I originally thought this was what I watched this with... One of my close friends. Now you've mentioned that it was 87. I'm thinking that it was with a friend of mine um, from college. Well, maybe not, because I would have been in law school. might have been when I came back. But um, I remember going to the movie theater and watching this in a movie uh, room or in a, the theater itself where there were not too many people. This was not something that the average crowd was going to just flock to because of the content. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of... Um, in in spots, you could maybe refer to it as comedic, um, but for most of it, it's rather 
dark. Um, gritty is the term most people use, but that's it, come become somewhat cliche. Uh, I found, and um, I think most people, if anything, um, really accentuate it for its authenticity um, and uh, that extra grounded realism um, that they kind of stumbled into, which we'll kind of get as a, a backstory on part of this, because uh, I'm sure that that's gonna that come up. Um, is really the biggest takeaway I have from this film. In the early 1980s, they did a survey, uh, and I can't remember, maybe it was TV Guide, uh, ask uh, real police officers across the country what show they enjoyed most and which show they thought was the most realistic. You know, and this isn't the time on television that you had Hill Street Blues, and you had all this, you know, so there was a lot of realistic comedy, or, uh, uh, cop shows on, and the police officers picked Barney Miller, because okay. they came to the conclusion that most police officers, because of what they do on a day-in, day-out basis, find humor in the most bizarre things that they can in order to, um, get through the day and function. Otherwise, it became so depressing and dark that it, it affected their psyche. So they would find these weird things that they would just laugh at and create these, you know, just teasing back and forth and making jokes about. And there's a certain element of that Kubrick picked up in this film about that. I've talked with through the years with a lot of Vietnam veterans and they all come back to the same stories is that they had close relationships with the guys in their unit and they all remember stuff that was so just absolutely shitly overly absurd that they just had to laugh at it. So let's get into the plot summary then. Um, Stanley Kubrick's take on the Vietnam War follows smart aleck Private Davis, Matthew Modine, Quickly chastened Joker by, or christened, God lord am I just, quickly christened Joker by his foul-mouthed drill sergeant, R. Lee Ermey, and pudgy Private Lawrence, Vincent D'Onofrio, nicknamed Gomer Pyle, as they endure the rigors of basic training. Though Pyle takes uh, a frightening detour, Joker graduates to the Marine Corps and is sent to Vietnam as a journalist, covering and eventually participating in the Bloody Battle of Hue. So, um, this is actually, for a Kubrick film, I, I know he was generally overlooked um, by a lot of the Academy, much in the same way that like Hitchcock um, very much was, but this was only nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, there really isn't uh, any other major recognition. It's not in the National Film Registry, it's... If it's on some lists, it's usually on some faraway ones. But I think this is a movie that if you ask um, military personnel or um, certain members of the general public that you immediately say, oh, we're covering Full Metal Jacket. Oh, yeah, I know that movie. And it has part of that where, like, I don't know if uh, this is a movie that's um, appealing broadly, but it certainly is something people know of. 
it's a niche film that is it really speaks to a certain element of people who served in the military. Um, I personally related with Matthew Modine because um, if I would have been in that situation, I would have been the smartass always because it's just my general personality and nature. Yeah, that does seem to be uh, the, the joke that you play on yourself often. Uh, so what is this movie about? This movie is a Rorschach test of what you see war to be. If you are somebody that comes into the idea that the Vietnam War was a heroic uh, exercise and uh, was going, you know, was fulfilling our uh, quest to rid the world of communism, you can find this movie to be um, to speak to you. If you can believe that this movie is a summary of the absolute futility of war, you can read that. The, just the sheer fact that Matthew Modine has on his helmet, born to kill, and then wears a pin that says peace on it, or it has the peace sign. This film is so nebulous as to what its exact purposes are, that you it can read almost anything. That's why you could have a group of five people go into this film, and you could literally have five different opinions as to what the film was about. So, I took it in a, a much more literal sense, but I do um, appreciate the perspective on that. It's something I certainly hadn't considered, um, but it makes sense as you kind of talk about it. Mine was more of a, it's just an authentic look at the experience of soldiers in a meaningless war where the only way to win is, sur is to survive. And they, they really, that's like the one point they try and hit home is just survival. But that's every war to a certain extent. Most of the time. And that's the actual thing that's saving Private Ryan, which I hope we are eventually going to be doing here uh, obviously, but of course we are. but that film made clear, which is when you're living in the moment, you're not necessarily thinking about the cause upon which you're fighting. You're just trying to survive. You ultimately come to the conclusion of what value or what purpose you had in retrospect. It's the hindsight is twenty twenty. You understand why you were doing it. While you're doing it, you have no clue what you're doing. You're just trying to live. Which is a, a sad commentary on the whole thing, but I understand exactly where they're, they're pointing that, and frankly, that tends to be the piece of all war films. All right, uh, that takes us to our normal best performance. Who did you have down? Uh, Vincent D'Afro... Vincent D'Onofrio? Vincent D'Onofrio, excuse me, yes. Okay. Although, it was much more um, nuanced, but uh, 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 Lee M. Er, er, Lee Ermey Ermey uh, was absolutely phenomenal. So, I think we've discussed it at one point or another, or I've brought it up on 
different shows before. That the notion of acting is is you're playing yourself at all times going through a particular situation. So Tom Hanks is going through AIDS as a um, gay man and a lawyer. Tom Hanks is a um, mentally challenged person who is going through some of the peak moments of history. Tom Hanks is uh, stranded on a desert island, but it's always Tom Hanks. Um, similarly, this is why we get the the um, characterization, or why you keep telling me you don't like Jack Nicholson, because Jack Nicholson plays every character the same. That's every actor. I don't care whether you're looking at Spencer Tracy, uh, Henry Fonda, Jack Nicholson, or Jimmy Stewart. They're always playing the same character. John Wayne was the same character in every single movie. There is only one person that I thought has ever been able to disappear into the role and be effective at doing it. Oh, and who am I going to guess is that? Is it possibly Daniel Day-Lewis? No. Really? That's who I would have said. probably the closest, but no. It's, um... Oh, and of course now I'm drawing a uh, thought to be the greatest actress of all time. Meryl Streep? Yes. I've watched her, in the amount of movies that I've had to watch of hers for uh, the best picture list that I've been trying to go through, or the AFI list, due to the amount of accents she's done, the amount of characters that she's done, um, she's the only one that I think can transform herself. Daniel Day-Lewis to a certain extent, but even he, like, you still see elements of Daniel Day-Lewis within um, uh, There Will Be Blood versus Lincoln versus Phantom Thread. But that's exactly why he's given up acting is because he puts so much of himself into these that he physically and mentally doesn't feel he can continue to do it in his 60s. I understand, and I... I Credit and respect where it's due. Uh, I'm sad that we don't end up with more performances, but I can at least admire his process and that he's at least to the point where he's got enough realization that he can step away with it with a clear conscience. So I expect that someone, someone with talent, will ultimately come up with some sort of screenplay that will require that level of commitment from an octogenarian and Daniel Day-Lewis will come back when he's 80 and win another Academy Award. Oh, you know that about the next time uh, Paul Thomas Anderson comes out with a script, that he's sending it over there, regardless of whether he thinks he's going to get um, Daniel Day-Lewis to do it or not. I mean, that, that's just... yeah. But anyway, I mentioned this to give... Um, one of the best uh, happy accidents to happen um, to Kubrick, and particularly this movie. Yes. And it's how Arlie Ermey goes from being a consultant to being the actor, and is probably the most iconic um, character in this movie, and uh, all of his stuff. I mean, most of the quotes or stuff that I pulled was just stuff of him riffing. Yes. And just being himself. Yes. 
I mean, to him, it, like, it's the best performance, but it was probably the most effortless performance. Yes, he was being himself. He was hired as a consultant to talk about what it was to be a Marine drill sergeant in boot camp. And what ended up happening is they kept bringing in actors and he would work with them and coach them and everything. And then they would go and he'd be screaming, no, 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 that's crap, that's shit, don't, oh, that's not how it's done. And finally Kubrick just says, why don't you go stand out there and do what you think it is? And so he went out and did it. And Kubrick said, you want to do the part? Well, and that's the one real true layer. Like, this movie is in two parts. Um, If we haven't convinced the audience, or basically, um, if you haven't seen the film before. The first part is all of the boot camp stuff. I mean, that's like the first hour, just over an hour of the movie. Which is in itself an element of survival when you're in the Marines. Correct. The second half is all of the stuff actually going in Vietnam. Now, in most movies, you're not going to spend that amount of time at boot camp. But frankly, um, the level to which um, the severity of him pushing and driving and challenging and um, just grinding away at all of these guys, and you can sympathize with um, D'Onofrio's character um, up until the point where he just snaps. And then you can't probably like relate anymore. But um, it's one of those things where honestly, this movie could have been that first hour and it would have been just fine. Yes. But you had to explore both sides of being a Marine, which is getting through boot camp and then dealing with your career as a Marine. I have more complications with the second half of this movie than I do. First is fairly straightforward. But, uh, well, we'll get into that. Uh, particularly because our best two performers, um, spoiler, which I always have as the disclaimer here, but uh, neither of our best performers that we've nominated are even in the second half of the film. Yes. Now I meant, or I nominated D'Onofrio as my best minor performer um, because he has a very long evolution of his character and the the grind that he has to go through in order to get to that point um, is the shaping of the first half of the movie, particularly by the time we get to its conclusion of the first act, part or act. Um, and he's so effective at playing that bumbling guy that, um, really is in over his head, up until the point where, um, you know he's not going to make it in some regard, and you're wondering why, um, he's even still there, or he hasn't been drummed out, essentially. Yes. So, for all of those particular reasons, and all of the layeredness and ability... I mean, personally, I think D'Onofrio, he's kind of gotten a second life now in the last probably ten years. Um, He's done some bit parts, he's been a very good character actor, but he's kind of gotten a lot more um, 
I wouldn't say starring roles, but like um, stuff where he's at least noticeable. Um, and it, it's kind of nice because this is a guy that um, I think could pop up and very easily win a Best Supporting Actor if he gets the right part in the right movie at some point. Yes. The, the, the thing about this that I'll, I'll admit, okay, Diafrino. Uh, sorry. D'Onofrio. D'Onofrio is about my age. So. Yeah, okay. So when he did this film, he and I were about the same age. And now I'm looking at him and where he is with his career and everything. And it's like you picture him as being young, and now he's a middle-aged guy on the tail end of his career. And you're like, you have a hard time coming to terms with this because it's like he was young and now he's not. And it's like all of a sudden you remember yourself being that young and then now you go, and there are many a days I get up in the morning and I look in the mirror and I... In the world and you have different people they who speak different languages. I observed this in, in Amsterdam. Somebody came up to somebody who was speaking Dutch. He spoke Italian. They looked at each other. They both spoke or started speaking in English and they conducted their business in English. I'm, I'm just going to say it, like... You may be true on the economics of it. China still can't be understated, and they've had a little bit longer um, tail at trying to make their um, economic aspirations um, part of uh, the general population or, or of the world. But also, uh, I think China is a more uh, important geopolitical foe at this point than uh, India, too, which I think has more bearing on it. But let's not get into that argument. So... Um, <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, best performance would be the first category up. Uh, who did you have down as your best overall performance? Patel. Yeah, I, I did too. I, I think he's easily the um, one of the, the better uh, performances in, in this whole thing. I don't think we can completely write off, uh, you know, maybe honorable mention of Danny Boyle, but um, I, I just thought he was um, terrific as the kid. In this, and this really kind of like jump started anything. Um, he's been in a few different cultural touchstones at this point. He was also in Lion a few years ago. Um, he's been in a, a, some smaller films. He was recently in, um, I think it was uh, uh, Love Stories or something like that on Amazon. It was a small mini series. Um, he was on, um, uh, what was Newsroom. that? Uh, Newsroom, thank you. Um, so he's had at least a decent. Um, little career after this of um, trying to make some more artistic or at least some um, decent written uh, programming um, of some variety so but yeah I would I would definitely say just from the way that he takes even from that first scene where they're like torturing him which um, it's I still don't know how that scene played so well in, in an American audience that um, the police are able to uh, interrogate you and then um, hook you or string you up by chains, then hook you to a battery and electrocute you in order to get you to confess. Well, first of all, <clears throat> um, you know, for the for people with some level of international knowledge or whatever, they understand that this is the way things some happen sometimes in the world. 
And for certain regions of the United States, this is the way police tactics are generally done to brown people. Well, by other brown people, though. Like, like, let's not note that under the table. I I just want to say... States is what I'm saying is, is this is a common police tactic in certain areas of the United States towards brown people. You're you're making um, um, some uncorroborated claims at the moment, but I'm sure there are people with particular feelings. After we just did Heat of the Night and we're talking about this. Okay, but him, him calling him boy and, you know, a couple of slaps to the face in 1967 by being comparison to hooking him up to a literal battery and electrocuting him is a little bit different. Did we or did we not have a situation where somebody died in custody in the United States in a cell, I believe in New York, where they tried to get him to confess by using a, a billy club as an enema? I am not familiar with that story. Yeah, I think it's in the mid-90s this was going on. So you're going to tell me it doesn't happen? I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm saying you don't have any great corroboration of that, and you're you're bringing or extrapolating a whole lot onto this conversation that um, may not necessarily be needed, but even so. I still don't think it plays well to the general white audience that probably saw this and um, didn't have, uh, you know, oh, my God, how can police officers do that when they're supposed to be upholding the community? (laughs) Okay. This is in no way to make an extrapolation on policing or police brutality or any of that at the moment. That is not a conversation I want to have on this podcast. I, I understand. It's just that, that, um, I, and I don't know if this is this happens all the time in India or if this is a special circumstance or whatever. I just know that stuff like this happens all over the world. It's a small point or portion of the the world. It's uh, just a few officers and stuff and police work. And most places, the United States, you know, all over the world, who abuse their office or their privileges, uh, their power, and create problems which permeate through the entire ranks. Much like, you know, it's usually one or two, you know, a few bad lawyers give the whole profession a bad name. Oh, good Lord. You're just, you're just bringing in all the elements tonight, aren't you? Oh, yeah. You, you're just, you just want to take me fully down the rabbit hole. Well, I got to do something to spice up things because I'm on day 45 of my isolation uh, and um, the walls are starting to get really narrow. Okay, I see. Uh, Best minor performance? Um, I I would say it's Danny Boyle. I I thought he did a very good job of building the film there's not too many dead spots. If it's not Danny Boyle, I would say whoever the editor was. Because it had a nice flow. It's not like there was a moment where you go, this is kind of pointless, or this isn't building to anything, 
or why is this here or what's going on? What's the purpose of this? Honestly, there were some sections in the middle where it felt disjointed to me um, that I, it took me out of the movie a f- couple of times. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I know most people really loved the flow to this movie and um, everything that kind of went with it. But I, I just I still there are certain elements of it that um, don't flow as well as the beginning and then the ending where it kind of the the beginning where it kicks off. And um, even the childhood scenes to me are a lot better than kind of those mid tier um, scenes. And then finally, the ending where it's kind of gets you in that. Uh, I think that last half hour is incredibly um watchable and just the the way it kind of ramps down on, on the back end um kind of uh, gives you a great ki- uh, final kick but um for me it's the same person I'm going to nominate for my most charismatic award and it's Anil Kapoor uh the guy who played the host of the game show honestly well and I know it's not a traditional one but um, he ends up ha- driving a lot of the character spots at times. Like the the interrogator is basically only there to serve as a um, motivation or as like a story device and just asking the general audience questions. But where you get a lot of the character development and um, a lot of the other personality as part of this. Um, especially figuring out that last portion of the, the movie where, um, he accuses him of cheating, um, gets him thrown into custody by the police, uh, interrogated. And then, you know, even the last part of the game show, like the whole repartee between, um, Dev Patel and Anil Kapoor is probably to me where the movie works best, where he's actually on the show and you get that tension or the element of the show. Yeah, I understand. And to some extent, he exemplifies the attitude of society towards the slum dog. You know, makes well, one I, of them being a to, of him serving tea to the people at work and makes fun of, you know, on and on. Yeah, yeah he does serve as a conduit, but he himself, even to the relatable point of view, he makes light of the fact that. You know, I was also a kid that came from nothing and I was charismatic and uh, you have the opportunity to be just like me, um, you know, uh, just as famous and maybe a little less rich, you know, and that's even some of his comments uh, coming in and out of like commercial breaks and such to him. Um, I think it gives kind of um, he other than maybe um, Salim has probably the most important effect of the movie. Okay. So, all right. Uh, your most charismatic award. I already gave mine. I, I gave mine to Anil Kapoor. Who did you have? Uh, actually, I had the brother. Um, so which version of the brother? The older brother. Simply because... No, but which version? Because there are three. There are three different actors who play the brother at different stages. Well, at the end... Okay. Because I think ultimately he um, comes full circle. He he's basically sacrificing himself because he has had to go. He went 
a path that was necessary to survive and then ultimately redeems himself by sacrificing himself. So uh, that's just my, you know, I thought that was a, a, a very powerful way of presenting the character at the end. Boy, I, and this is where some of these parts for me kind of break down. Um, is uh, that, you know, more than uh, any of the other spots, I, I feel that the movie kind of loses a little bit of um, where it's going in that moment, where he turns on it and tries to redeem himself and uh, realizes all of the th- shitty things he's done to his brother over the years and somehow thinks but through this one act he can uh, make up for everything. Um, I just looked up the actor's name. His name is uh, Madhur Mittal. But I, I just, I don't, I, I don't buy his all of a sudden change of heart when almost every part of his character, from a younger boy to a teenage boy to you know everything else, has been about his own selfish desires, um, save for maybe one or two instances where he was looking out for his brother. Oh, but it's not. You're you're missing the point. the The final line he gives is not is not. <laughs> is not about I've sacrificed for my brother. He has sacrificed himself to write himself with God. It's still him being selfish. It's he's Boy, I didn't get that at all. Oh no, this is all about him him being selfish right till the very end. He's sacrificing himself by and then he says God is good. He's sacrificing himself to put himself right with God. It has nothing to do with being right with his brother. He doesn't give a shit about his brother. He's all about, I know the fact that I'm sinning by doing well, this. And so I'm giving myself up at this point in time to right or wrong, but I'm really doing it for my own salvation. Honestly, uh, Salim is probably the most, or is the hardest character for me to understand out of this whole thing. And yet his device... Um, is the thing that's needed in order to make the movie work overall. And that's part of why I, I have some issues here technically with how this movie goes. And, you know, I do think that there is an underpinning of um, care or nurturing for his brother at some regard. You know, the way that uh, he picks up the phone and tries to reconnect with him after um, Jamal finally finds him again at the call center or the way that he helps him escape the orphanage. You know, there are certain points in time where he does the right thing, but even, you know, and back and forth, he's an extremely complex character that we never fully understand his motivation throughout this whole thing. He goes from one selfish moment to one protective moment to a selfish moment and back and forth like a ping pong ball half of the movie. But that's the story of, of a lot of people, which is, in this case, he is a gangster. So it is no different than some of the characters that we uh, looked at, like Joe Pesci in uh, uh, Goodfellas, or what we, I, I assume, will Goodfellas. Goodfellas, uh, which we will get to eventually, I would assume, is Al Pacino and Scarface. These are characters who are deeply flawed, 
because they come from horror, from horrible backgrounds. At times they're honorable, at other times they're just sleazeballs. I think a better representation of that is a movie that we're going to save for one of our um, celebratory episodes at one of these points, maybe a year-end piece, but um, the Godfather movies. Not, not Al Pacino and Scarface. Him doing um, Don Corleone in Godfather Part 1 and Part 2 is, is okay. a, a better circumstance where it's a much more layered and complex character who's, um, does certain things nobly, but eventually is corrupted by his own ability to have so much power available to him. Okay. By the way, uh, spoiler alert, but my most charismatic award for the Godfather is going to go to Abe Vigoda. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Why don't you just give it to the horse head? <laughs> oh, anyway. All right. So, uh, the nominees for best scene, uh, and you can throw any, any on at the back end, but I'll just go through a few that I had. Um, the scene where, uh, Prem or the host of the show, uh, Neil Kapoor gives Jamal the wrong answer and has that whole conversation in the bathroom, um, you know, trying to basically, uh, throw him off of the show, and um, he still makes his way through it. Uh, number two, um, uh, for me, would have been um, uh, Jamal um, jumping in a pile of shit in order to meet his hero. Um, the scene where he reunites with his brother, so not only the call center scene where he actually looks him up, but and then calls him, but then when they meet in the construction zone, and it's the one element that doesn't seem to sit with the rest of this film where it had an element of a fantasy in it and um, kind of had that weird cutscene where he, he knocks his brother off the construction site and they both plummet to their death, but that's only in kind of a fantasy portion. Um, then uh, Salim killing Ma uh, Maman... So when they go back and find uh, Latika and you get this whole element where they've cornered them and they or you you get this sense that they're going to get caught. They're going to end up back in the orphanage or something bad's about to happen. All of a sudden, Salim's brought a gun with him and he kills the guy. And then finally, um, the scene where uh, they accidentally become tour guides at the Taj Mahal. Yeah. Uh, all five of those for me would be uh, nominees. Any that you'd like to throw in? It's a horrible um, scene, but it is one that's poignant for the film, and that would be the scene where their mother is killed. So I, that was one I was going to possibly bring around, and I think it does beg a larger conversation, particularly due to the uh, geopolitical circumstances that are currently going on um, in, in India at the moment even. Um, we're having a lot of... Um, I, it's not maybe to the level of a genocide, but, I mean, it's it's getting damn close. The Modi government at the moment is um, trying to project Hindi strength and power. They're 
having some level of a cultural um, warfare against all Muslims in the country, going through enacting all of these uh, separate laws that do that. And so to have this level of an element, and I know that this has been going on even since um, the time of Gandhi, where that's another movie we'll likely get to at some point, but, um, you know, the warring factions between the two massive religions of the region. But you have to understand, when India was the pearl of the British Empire, <clears throat> it comprised what is now presently um, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, I'm trying Nepal, to Bhutan, Nepal. Yeah. Um, and Afghanistan. Uh, I didn't think Afghanistan was part of that. I thought it was a separate. I thought they separate. had the Afghani wars. They did, but it was Afghanistan. It wasn't India. But the rest of that was all India. And what ended up happening is, is uh, they split off because it was primarily divided into separate Muslim and Hindi countries when Gandhi died. Gandhi is what kept that country together because he kept them from having a complete um, uh, religious war within the country. And when Gandhi was assassinated by a Muslim, I believe, um, it opened up fusion or fissures within the country that ended up splitting off different areas uh, to be Muslim versus Hindi. And so that that's the thing. Um, culturally, uh, I shouldn't say culturally, but uh, uh, as much, how do I want to put this? I guess uh, genetically, the people of India and the people of Pakistan are the same people. It's religion that separates the two countries. Uh, yeah, and also, you know, Bhutan and Bangladesh uh, are also Muslim majority. Uh, was uh, formerly Ceylon, um, now Sri Lanka, also part of that? Because they're, I believe, Muslim ma majority in Sri Lanka at the current time. Correct, but Sri Lanka is a little bit different in the fact that it was a separate uh, British um, okay. protectorate. I mean, it was it was at the time Ceylon. So you have to understand, the British Empire started because of the British desire to uh, develop um, trade with the Far East. So as you had, you know, uh, shipping, you had to have places to port. So you developed and you took control of South Africa because you had to go around the Cape in order to get east. You had stopped in India. You stopped in um, Singapore because that was the next stop to get up to China. You, you know, so everything was devolved or evolved from the British uh, maritime trade. And that's how it all developed. And so that's why there was an empire, because Britain was an island and they had minimal resources. Yeah, I, I suppose um, that, that uh, whole question, though, bringing it back around, uh, for as relevant as it is, even though it's a small section of the film, um, still has a lot of um, cultural re relevance for um, what it is to be, um, I guess, uh, part of this overall. I, I, that's maybe poorly said, but um, it, it is important 
not only to the scene or excuse me to the movie but also cultural touchstone yeah i think it to some extent what this film does is it kind of portrays the uh the interplay of class that still exists in india but it also shows the level of disdain hostility and abject hatred that exists between hindis and muslims so is that was your uh nominee for best scene my nominee for best scene was the scene where um He's a child and he figures out it was better to jump in a pile of ship and to get to see his hero than to miss it. Okay, is that your best scene or favorite scene? Well, I guess it's my favorite scene. That was mine too, just because, and I literally wrote this down in my notes, who in the world am I jumping in a pile of shit in order to meet? I can't think of a single person that I would want to meet that badly. So that's why it was funny to me, but I can think of a couple, but to the point where I'm like completely caked in it. Mm, nah, I guess not. I, I I literally I no, I I don't think there's a single person in the world that I would want to meet that badly. All right, so um. What did you, or do you have any nominees for best line? <laughs> well, it's not like there were that many lines that were just no. really memorable. I mean, the one scene, I guess, but... you know, at the, where he's doing the interplay at the game, you know, it is written, you know. Well, that I, and that stuff. kind of has the foreshadowing of the beginning and the end of how they kind of... Um, do this movie obviously the the opening scene being that or the opening piece of it um being that they um you know give the background or the circumstance of this movie already um flash forward you know uh, is he cheating is he a fraud um is he lucky or is it written and obviously they end the movie by um giving it that this is supposedly part of a whole um destiny piece uh going forward yeah um, so a few nominees that I had, so, uh, best line for me, um, when somebody asks me a question, I tell them the answer just because I think that fits kind of, um, his whole approach to the movie and even how he gets, um, to be, uh, to that point in the police station that he's just answering questions yeah. and he's trying to be truthful and he's at least learn the value of uh, a simple amount of honesty um, despite his circumstances. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I can understand that, I guess. Honorable mention for me, just because I think it um, sets up really kind of the tension of the whole final scene. Um, uh, Prem, final question for 20 million rupees, and he's smiling. I guess you know the answer. Do you believe it? I don't. You don't? So you take the 10 million and walk? No, I'll play. And just, you know, that he's... He just doesn't care at all about any of this. Like, the conscientious person that cares all about the money is trying to do everything not to lose it once they've obtained it. 
And, you know, in this one moment, he just um, shows that he's really, that element of it doesn't matter. So that brings us to funniest line, your favorite one every week. Uh, Do you even have a nominee? (laughs) Uh, We're here in Germany. And we are older than you are. (laughs) And we are older. to the wise man. Oh, 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 don't give me that bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) The healthy Germans with Angela in front. (laughs) Oh, my God. No. Okay, that was the wise wise German. But I agree with Alex because here... um, you must see that we here in Germany don't um, see every movie that you see, and the 50s and the in USA we only know from some movies. And one of the movies which shows us the 50s in USA, <laughs> or maybe should say the movie which shows us the 50 in the USA, is Back to the Future. There might be few others but not very many so yes i give it a 10. all right eva something to say just agree yeah i would like to agree um i give it nine to ten because i like the 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 playing of uh, the yeah some kind of role models of this time during referring to the 50s as referring to the 80s so they're they're playing with the prejudices of this time so as marty appeared with this um red uh, uh, west arm yeah and uh he's asked if he's wearing a life vest <laughs> and um yeah playing some kind of show playing with the, the styles like yeah. we think the 50s were in America so yeah. um, when you ask me the biggest so this showing of these two periods of time I like it the two biggest movies talking about the 50s and actually we have in both movies kind of a time shift is uh, of course back to the future and the next one is pleasant will oh yes <laughs> oh yeah that's great uh, yeah. <laughs> pleasant will so, um, but Pleasantville only shows the the, the um, uh, TV uh, TV version, TV of, the version of the 50s, not the 50s. Yes. Back to the Future shows the 50s. The yeah. TV version of the 50s, which how you know it in so many old TV shows, is something what we don't know at all. In Germany, TV version of the 50s in the United States, we don't have any examples. Sometimes when you just uh, drive down the road. There are so many little um, little cities, little towns. Uh, they still look like the 50s or 60s in, in the US. We don't have that in Germany. Yeah. So you have another eye on it, of course. A different point of view. Yeah. When we and go in this, the old stuff, we might see some little traces from, yeah, maybe not medieval times, but from, um, yeah. from maybe 100 years ago. And um, old little, we see, of course, yeah, traces from the medieval times, but as well, bigger things from like a hundred years ago. But um, this, um, this big thing 
kind of big thing what are the 50s in the United States. This is something what we are kind of missing this way, specifically regarding how it was in the United States. It was for us a much, much different time, of course, because the 50s was for us a time of um, starving and so on. Nobody loves to talk about this. The 50s? This was just short about after the World yeah, War II? This was uh, uh, also the time of beginning the so Yeah, late, late, late 50s. Late 50s was the uh, yeah. Yeah. Wonder. The uh, starting uh, to travel to Italy. In, to, industry you know? uh, going up and so on uh, yeah. because of the help of the British, American, English yeah. to build up a wall against. Uh, yeah, UDSSR. That, that was beginning of the 60s. That was all political uh, um, made in Germany, so not normally grown. grown. So, if it was you different for us. Normals, it's quite the same. So, women stays at home, men go to yeah. work. Okay, that's uh, that's the same. So, if you. Okay. Uh, all right, Impact Significance. Probably one of the biggest movies of the 80s, um, and if not the biggest, uh, at, as far as pop culture. Uh, I There are probably a couple of others that you would nominate, you know, Ghostbusters, Ferris Bueller, um, Top Gun, yeah. that are going to be easily in that Star list. Wars. Wait, Star Wars. Well, it depends on which one, because the original Star Wars is 77, but Empire is 80. Now, I've maintained that the most important sequel ever made is um, The Empire Strikes Back because it really established franchise films where, you know, modern films, especially with how Hollywood is going right now, you know, you have Netflix and some of these small independent studios, but the big studios right now, all they're focusing on is building franchise movies. So they make one movie so that they can make four movies. Um you know, yes. whether that's the Avengers uh, or Batman easy, or... Uh, easy earning money. Well, it's an established thing that they can make sure that they, if they're going to spend a lot of money, they're going to get a rate of return on. So there are not a lot of properties that where you're going to go to that. But this is kind of that second wave where you still don't have um, the same level of franchises, but this is kind of that next step of, of different movies where you had multiple ones. Um, this comes before, uh, it, not before the original Terminator, but before uh, Terminator 2 had happened, because there was a significant gap between Terminator 1 Terminator 2. Uh, this happens before Jurassic or the Jurassic Park movies. This happens before the Batman movies. Um, the only one I would say that's uh, in that original Star Wars category is, is that you'd had multiple Superman movies at this point that had turned into a franchise. So that might be the one, but this is that next wave of where you start to see certain franchises picking up. Um, so the other thing, and I've mentioned it multiple times, uh, is that this is the first significant time travel movie and still has, you know, any other movie that's going to use time travel as a significant plot device. This is, um, what they build it on or, you know, even though Avengers kind of uses their own version of certain things with um, time travel and doesn't obey many of the rules, they still address it because this movie has drilled into the heads of so many people 
what time travel is and the rules for time travel and, you know, the butterfly effect of one little thing here then um, affects something over here and et cetera, et cetera. So but now you're talking as, about not only one movie, but yeah. you're talking about the complete series. When Doc Brown was explaining this to Marty in the second movie, this is what you're taking into account, right? Well, I mean, you take some of that is still played out by this original piece because everything he's doing in the past still affects his present or what will yeah. be his present. So by that definition, I don't think this is the most impactful movie in the history of cinema, but it's still high up there for inspiring a next generation of filmmakers, of um, doing a, a bunch of different sound and um, techniques uh, effects that, um, you know, you start advancing. If it not for something like this, you know, is Spielberg going to take that next big leap of going to Jurassic Park? Now, mind you, I think it's possible because he had already done Jaws, but, you know, certain movies build on other movies. And the adventure films of the 80s give way to a lot of uh, what we were able to do in the 90s and the 2000s as far as um, special effects and building certain worlds. Um, so as far as impact and significance, I gave it a nine for that reason. I'm not sure how to comment this, really. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um... I always try and look in a bigger picture kind of view. This is significant, but is it the most significant of movies? It's not just, you know, where this movie grades out, but you have to think of it in context of movies as a whole. Because the whole show is trying to be built around finding the greatest movie of all time. And this can be one of them, but, you know, is where does it stack up on that list? And that's where we're trying to go. When we're talking about time travel movies... I think um, yes. Mm -hmm. This is very, very important. Yeah. Um, this is um. What should I say? When you look at Back to the Future, and this was so early, showing such a um, how should I say scientific way of time traveling mm -hmm. with so much, um, so much input, so much technical input, technical explanation, showing a real theory of time traveling. There are many theories of time traveling. Talk to the guys of Bing Bang Theory, then you get many of them. <laughs> yeah. um, different dimensions, same dimensions, timelines, and so on. It's all very interesting if you are... If you are into um, sci-fi, so many movies, so many um, systems have picked it up, taken this theory of time travel as they have in Back to the Future, or taken different theories of time travel. And I think when we're talking about time travel on the screen, then there are two things, two, two names which are really big, which mm -hmm. is... One, Back to the Future. Yeah, that's the first absolute, benchmark, the first absolutely. Benchmark, I agree. And the second one, not far away time-wise, is when you ask me Back to the Back. With Sam Beckett. Yeah, uh, Quantum Leap. 
Quantum League. Quantum League. Quantum League. But it's not a cinema, it's a TV series. It's a TV, yeah. sh it's a TV show. Yeah. Quantum League. Thank you. Who, uh, Sam Beckett sent himself. Do you know it? Dean Stockwell. I've heard uh, of it. I don't think I've ever watched it. Quantum okay. League. This is this? Quantum Leap. Yeah. He's okay. um, uh, traveling uh, between his own uh, lifetime. Um, okay. It was a great show. I loved it uh, in the early really good. 90s. Dean Stockwell? Dean Stockwell, yeah. So this is... Um, and he, he always had to to um, repair things that happened wrong in the past to make it uh, better for the future. Correct in the past. This is yeah. a little bit strange and different, but um, regarding Back to the Future and Quantum League, these are the really things which started to bringing us TV sitter guys um, into the question of time traveling. And okay. after that, all the others came, like Terminator and so on. Sure. So, yeah. You gave so, it a nine. I agree. Okay. What are, there the, not, what are the not other many thoughts here? Movies, uh, well, the, well, the second movie is better than the first one. Uh -huh. um, Back to the Future is not part of that. No. Terminator is. It's Terminator is. And yeah. uh, Star Wars maybe, but uh, Terminator, the second part works even if you do not know the first one. Star Wars, you have to know the first one. So, a little difference. Um, maybe. I think you could possibly watch Empire and it works, although you don't have the same relationship to the characters. Um, when you're young, you see uh, uh, lightsabers. Okay. <laughs> they can tell you the most bullshit they have lightsabers. <laughs> Ready. <laughs> what works was uh, what work was um, 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 and cute little Ewoks. Return, uh, yeah. Return of the Jedi, which was the first Star Wars movie I third. saw ever. <laughs> the third that works great because I had the Ewoks and I had I Carrie Fisher in the not so much dress. No. So that oh, yeah. works very good for me. That was. I'm not allowed Star to talk movie. about this. She's not blonde. No. Uh, she's not blonde, it. but yeah. blonde. anyway. And she's dead. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk about Heather Thomas. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> we are hitting different subjects here. <laughs> All right, so, but what do the other two have for scores? <clears throat> or are we okay no, with it just being at nine? We, repeat this, please. So what do the other two have down for scores, or are we okay with this just being a nine? Yeah, yeah. Nine, nine and a half. Okay, so we have another one in there. Because it's uh, a movie that uh, uh, touched me in my early, mm. early life, and I will never forget it. And uh, if you think about movies where you can follow every word, not every yeah. line, every word, word by word, and you enjoy looking it again and again yeah. and again and again. And after looking it again and again, you start watching it in, in English. <laughs> and you see some more details. And you Space love balls. it. <laughs> you love it again and again and again. Um, there are not many movies that can do that with you. Sure. And that's because this half point... Is it worth movies who are uh, which are setting 
kind of a base for so many other movies. And in the newer time, there's only man, one movie which is doing this, not as strong as Back to the Future, but as well doing it, which is Matrix. Matrix, part one. Part one, of yeah. course. Which was only part one. the base on only a technical level for movies like even like Shrek. <laughs> yeah. Just on a technical level. But back to the future. Scary movie. Scary, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> scary movie, yes of course. But Back to the Future was doing this on a serious technical way in a way which And it's I absolutely entertaining. It's perfectly entertaining. So easy. It is. When you go to uh, to a cinema You want to be entertained, and it absolutely entertains you from the first until the last second. True, agree. All right. So, um, so what do we have down for novelty, or do you need me to explain that one? Oh yeah, the novelty definitely. Oh, um, we we are not talking about. Uh, Yeah, it, we are not talking about two and three. We are only talking about one. So we're not Correct. talking about hoverboard, right? No. Correct. When you look back in time, of course, the skateboard, but this yeah. kind of doesn't work because it's going back, right? Mm -hmm. Then we have, of course, the time machine. Yeah. On the technical level. So, oh. um. We have science fiction movies before this. Uh, we've uh, seen different um, different plays on um, the subjects. We've seen romantic movies. Uh, I think it's building on a lot of these levels, but it's there are not many movies that combined all of these elements and did it in a way that seemed successful. I mean, you've had or you had comedic science fiction movies that worked well in the 80s. Ghostbusters is in there um, that was ultimately successful in a similar way. But uh, I think the the novel parts of this movie are um, the way it uses time travel successfully uh, and maybe some of the technical effects. But uh, outside of that, like... I, I wouldn't say this is taking up a novel subject matter necessarily um, outside no. of time travel. And um, I can't think of too many other pieces. So I gave it an eight. Um, maybe it, it built the career of um, Michael J. Fox hmm. because all the roles he had after that um, shown that little nice guy maybe that's something this is peak michael j fox but the show that built him was an american sitcom called family ties that he yeah. was one of the stars of so i don't know if this is his peak role be known in germany because nobody knows in germany we only know okay but but there are better ones there was not yeah, okay, not because, well, uh, yeah. if it's um, Not yeah. very successful in Germany. Successful. It was seen, yes, but not so successful yeah. without all the other things. So, yes, definitely. That was the yeah. movie which made him successfully yeah. international. 
Well, it's that's that'll grant you. I I still think um, that ultimately any success he has afterwards are built a little bit on the back of this franchise, and he turns into a much much bigger star. But uh, I don't think that it built his brand by itself, at least for the American audience. And at you know during the eighties, up until maybe about gosh uh, two thousand and five. Movies were not made for an international audience. They were made for, um, you know, American audiences and then hoped that it would translate elsewhere. Whereas currently, like, um, the if you're hoping to open a movie and have it be ultimately successful, you want to have the Chinese market, the European market, and the American market and have them all simultaneously do well. Part of the reason that the recent Star Wars movies weren't as big as uh, some others or even like the Avengers movies is they don't play well in uh, Europe and China because they don't have the same connection sometimes that uh, American audiences do because it's an older uh, franchise. The Avengers franchise is such a more modern franchise that all of these audiences have grown up with it. But at the time... You're not building upon that. So Michael J. Fox is built on possibly uh, one of the three biggest shows of the 80s at the time. It was probably between The Cosby Show, uh, Family Ties, and uh, Cheers at, at during the 80s for an American television audience, and he was a part of one of them. But this movie took him from being you know, a, a star of a TV show to being a, a movie star. And so that that does build something, but I don't know if that fits into novelty necessarily. Okay. So then we agree to eight. Okay. We do. All right. Eight's all around, so we can do that. Uh, all right. Classicness. I'm sure this is probably one of the more difficult categories to explain. So uh, I think rewatchability is self-explanatory, and you guys are probably going to grade this out much higher uh, because you watched this movie a lot more than I have. So I already mentioned to you the George McFly spying on someone. That does not age well in a Me Too environment. No. Um, them, stripping, th them stripping uh, his pants off and him sleeping in his underwear. Also, kind of weird. <laughs> um, the, the use of the DeLorean. I know it's classic, but... You know, the fact that AMC as a, uh, you know, as a brand even, let alone the car itself, um, doesn't exist. There are elements of that that, you know, don't necessarily fit 35 years later. So I, I think it ages, but I there are certain elements of it that don't, you know, I, I can't give it a full 10. So uh, I went with seven and a half. Um, I can probably be convinced up to an eight. Because this is somewhat of a period movie, and because we have the benefit of hindsight where you're making a movie in 1985 that's mostly about 1955, you have the benefit of looking back with some hindsight and um, not having weird elements. But there are, there are some cringy parts of this movie that uh, didn't age well. Also, uh, Pepsi-free? What the hell is Pepsi-free? Pepsi free. <laughs> 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 free. Yeah. 
Free of pain? <laughs> what? <laughs> mm. um, yeah. the, the things that never uh, get an age is the score. Absolutely the score, the music. Yeah. Because um, yeah. you can ever play that music if it is orchestral music or is it uh, uh, the rock music. Everyone knows it. Yeah. And everyone gets a feeling about it. Yeah. Every sure. time. No, I'll but buy that. The only thing that will never, will never get any age. Yeah. Okay. So what would you have for a point total? If this is the only one, I would like to agree with you. I'm fine yeah. with this. Okay. All right. Uh, rewatchability. I hope I don't have to explain much of this one, but basically, how many or you know, um, do you watch this movie regularly, essentially, but uh, have no problem rewatching it? You know, it's fun no matter how many times you watch it, or um, you know, I, I place it into the same category. Um, I we did Ferris Bueller, even though I haven't uploaded the episode um, yet. We're keeping it in reserve. But uh, we did a Ferris Bueller episode not too long ago, and I watched it the first time through. Then Sarah's like, I haven't seen this movie, so I played it again. I literally played it back to back, which is about the first time I've done that ever with a movie in probably 20 years. But uh, essentially that um, you get uh, or that you can watch it back to back without it being a problem. You know, on a scale of one to ten, how rewatchable is this movie? Um, this is only the second time I've seen it. I know you guys are going to differ with me on it, but I had it in an eight and a half. This is not one of those that like is one of watch every week if I wanted to, because I can always watch it for 15, 20 minutes and laugh. So that's going to have high rewatchability to me. Um, you know, but this film. You almost have to kind of be in the right mood. It has to be the right time frame and the right distance from the last time you saw it. All right, so bringing in an audience score of 85 uh, for an 8.5. And just to revisit the categories, we had a uh, 7.67 for Legacy. We had an 8 for Impact Significance, a 7 for Novelty, a 5 0.83 for classicness, a 5 for rewatchability after we averaged that out. Sorry, I forgot to provide that a second ago. And an 8.5 for rewatchability for a final total of 42 total points, placing it uh, just below big and just ahead of Rocky on our list. That's not too shabby. All right. Let's move right into remaining questions with what time we have left. Uh, does anybody else have any remaining questions? All right, so uh, this is going to be kind of open discussion. Oh, Dad, what did you have? Well, no, I, you know, the way the film ends. You know, what is the reaction of the kids? Um, the fact that you find, you know, you're saddened by your parents' deaths. You know, they happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. But by the same token, you're going, oh, my God, my parents got to, to be with each other as they died. I mean, it's got to be a moment of just absolute elation. And 
the tragedy of death of your parents. Because so, I, I, I've said this, having lost both parents, when my, my mom passed well before my dad, when my dad died, it's not just the death of my father, it was the death of my childhood. Because at that point, my childhood was gone. I am now an adult, and I am the oldest. I am the one that is responsible now. I can't go back and relate to my parents anymore. And so you have that that feeling. And so I just was... That's the thought that crossed my mind when the, when the nurse walker kind of like finds them both dead, runs out of the room to get help, you know, ultimately breaking the news to the kids and you're going, you know, how do you deal with that? I will ask a simple question. Since you've lost both of your parents and it was about 10 years apart, roughly. Yes. Would it have been easier to lose them both at one time and have it done as opposed to losing them both separately and having different grieving periods? Boy, I, I can't answer that because it's it's not something that I've even thought about. And, you know, from a, from a healing point of view, it would probably have been easier to lose them both at the same time because you'd all have to go through one grieving process. But would that grieving process be exponentially worse? Because you've gone from having both parents to no parents suddenly. And and interestingly, my my dad passed. And five days before my dad had passed, his best friend from childhood uh, and his wife, um, they both joined the United States Army in 1957. They went in together. They got separated. Um, he ended up marrying a German girl and bringing her back. They had been married for like 48 years or something like that. They passed away, one from cancer and the other from, uh, uh, or no, it was both different types of cancers. Passed two hours apart, five days before my dad passed. You know, and I, I knew the, the their kids, uh, not real well, but I knew them. And now, you know, it's like, how do you deal? I thought about that. How do you deal with both parents dying on at the same time almost? And I, I, I can't really answer the question because it's one of these situations where you you don't have the ability to really relate you have you have to find something some experience in your life that triggers the emotional response to something that you can only think of and i i i just can't do it i i just would have a difficult time and it, it probably makes it worse in my case because one was a sudden death and the other was a lingering agonizing death um which only makes things you know it, it there were completely different and separate and both had their impact i mean it was dealing with it all at once versus dealing with it incrementally over a period of eight to nine months i don't know your personal situation Maruna, so forgive my ignorance but do you have really anything to add on that like i would feel like obviously death is difficult and just to answer the original question 
I think losing them both at the same time would be really difficult. Um, my husband recently lost his mom, and even just dealing with with that, and she kind of died very suddenly. You know, we're going through that grieving period, but you know, I can't imagine. As your dad said, I think it would be that much worse to have to lose both your parents because uh, you're not expecting that and you're not really ever ready for it, I don't think. I mean, it's, it's something you know that's in, uh, inevitable, but yeah, losing two people that you love and that you've shared so much with for your whole life, I would think that's much more difficult. The one part I'll add, and just to something you said there, was they have literally been there since the moment you came out. And to not have that stability, that presence, you never expect until it happens that that's ever not going to be there. It's been such a stabilizing force. And so I've unfortunately had that thought of playing that ahead in my mind of when dad, when you would go or when mom would go. And there's just sudden something where it's like... It, you get to a certain point in the future and you just can't mentally picture it far enough in order to be able to know what it's like. It's so foreign of a concept that I, I really don't know what it's going to be on the other side of that. So uh, next, uh, go ahead. No, I just was going to comment. Uh, if you remember the scene from the 10 commandments where I've never Moses, Moses comes down from Mount Ararat in um, you know Charlton Heston Mount Sinai and, or excuse me Mount Sinai and and when he comes down and he presents the Ten Commandments he uh, his hair starts to gray right there it's because he's now reached wisdom and knowledge and, and so that's a very you know poignant scene in the movie I felt like that coming back from my dad's funeral. It was like all of a sudden I realized I am now the patriarch. All right. So the other question that I, well, I have two more yet, but um, and my second of the three. And it's it's kind of a weird moment that just kind of stuck out like a sore thumb to me. When they introduced the kids, they introduced them as his, not hers. And they make a point of saying that. And I just felt it was kind of odd. I know that they're trying not to, like, so maybe that's my ignorance or unfamiliarity with Alzheimer's, that you don't want to present a situation where they're supposed to have a relationship with somebody and spring that on them, so then they feel off-put, but that it just seemed odd to me. Now, that's exactly it, and that's exactly the point that was being made, which is, if they would have introduced your kids, then she gets riled up. And, and can't because she doesn't remember them. And she, so she gets very upset because they're, you know, who are you? Who are you? Why are you talking to me like this? You're not. And so you just can't. That's how I interpreted that as well. I don't know. It was just something that it was so noticeable because they made such a um, choice to make it that way that it, it just stuck out to me. And so I, I guess it took me out of it for a second. And maybe that was the point. So uh, I'll, I'll guess I'll credit it on that. Final question I have. How have we not find found a better way to collectively deal with dementia or Alzheimer's? 
we've been dealing... I, I know that mental health and our level of importance to it isn't even completely recognized societally, not to the extent it probably needs to be, or the extent that I'd like it to be as somebody who deals with um, his own mental health challenges. But for this being a 15-year-old movie, and that this isn't necessarily a new topic... I, I don't know. I, I would have thought that for how utterly helpless and debilitating this has to be for everybody that goes through or has someone else that goes through it has to feel that there would have been a much bigger fervor to try and figure out a better way of, of handling this it, because it just seems like we're exactly where we were 15 years ago with this. There is studies being done, there's tests, there's stuff. I mean, they've linked uh, Alzheimer's onset to various issues. Um, there's, you know, we've made point of trying to, you know, what the, I mean. From a medical I'm, standpoint or a, a, a physical medicine, sure. But I, I just, I don't think we have enough appreciation uh, empathy, sensitivity, or a way of handling this in a way that doesn't feel ostracizing. I mean, I, there are more and more it, seemingly people that are going through either uh, fairly advanced stages of dementia or Alzheimer's because we have people living longer. And the more people we have and the more people that are going through these situations, not them personally, because I don't know how much it is really difficult for me to put the shoe myself in, in the shoes of somebody that is suffering from it. But I can definitely put it on the other side of finding uh, people that uh, have to watch people that they know go through it. This is becoming a bigger problem because there are more people going through this. There should be a better way. Yeah, you know, and it's not like there've been, um, you know, a lack of uh, famous, influential people who have gone through it. Ronald Reagan had Alzheimer's. To some extent, it's one of these situations, I think, where people just try to avoid it. They don't want to think about it. Um, to me, who's somebody who's made their living off their uh, brain and um, prides themselves on that. The idea of becoming an Alzheimer's a victim is so frightening to me that it's hard for me to express the level of that fear. I hate to end it on such a dour note, but uh, I think that's a good place to probably... Uh, put it out so um with that uh let's just uh finish up runa what did you think of uh being on the show for the first time i really enjoyed it and i um enjoyed talking about the movie and also just uh watching the knowledge of you and your dad on movies and how you analyzing that i think that's really great and um yeah i appreciate being on the show and for anybody in the audience um, who would like to know more about you or um, read any of your books, uh, find your podcast, how would they do so? 
You can find me on LinkedIn, Aruna Krishnan. And uh, you can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Lead That Thing, which is the name of my podcast. And my LinkedIn page of my podcast is Lead That Thing. Perfect. Uh, I also would like to give a shout out. You and I are both uh, founding members of Podcast Town, so you can find us both over there on the podcast or community.podcasttown.net. I really haven't found a better group of people who are more genuine and caring and generous uh, than some of the people over there. So uh, I'm just glad that uh, we found great people like yourself to connect to. So um, same here. Enjoyed uh, enjoyed having you on the show, Aruna. Thanks, Dana. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, we will be discussing either one of two movies. If we have our guest come through, who is not confirmed yet, uh, we'll be talking about Alien. Or uh, we, Dana and I will be doing a solo episode on Bridge on the River Kwai, our first uh, David Lean movie that just came on Prime. So if you want to watch that one ahead of time, because that might be coming up in the next few weeks, uh, I would suggest doing so. Again, that's on Amazon Prime. Um, that's uh, one you'll be probably whistling the tune for afterwards. So stick around on this feed for that one. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with the show, uh, greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. That's all one word. Greatest all-time movie podcast at gmail.com. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. Thanks and have a great week, everyone. 